We'll take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, if you brought your Bibles. Scripture, many of them will be on the screen if you didn't, but we're glad to have guests and friends and family here this morning for this Christmas Eve gathering, and we do want to continue in worship with the Word this morning. You know, Christmas, especially services like this, serve to... Uh, re, kind of reset, recalibrate our hearts and minds, uh, at least it should, around what is the essential part that makes Christmas Christmas. You know, the very name Christmas is the word Christ Mass, Christ Worship. And so this morning as we have gathered on this Christmas Eve, and I thank you for being out tonight or this morning, don't even know what day it is, but this morning, I'm already thinking about tonight. So, uh, but uh, I want us to kind of re, recalibrate a bit, take a moment to focus on the Christ that we worship. And we're going to do that by drawing on some three friends from Scripture. And this morning's title is, What the Wise Men Teach Us About Worship. What the Wise Men Teach Us About Worship. Often, our struggle in worship this time of year is we gather, we go through the, the trappings, the singing, all the things, but really are we worshiping? And sometimes uh, we're busy and, and we just kind of crowd that in, oh, I got to go to church, I got to do this, got to be at Christmas Eve, but is that really worship? And sometimes it's just all of us have that struggle, but sometimes we struggle with worship not just because we're busy and we're busy all the time, but sometimes we've never really been taught how to worship. What are the essential ingredients of worship? How do you worship? And I think in Matthew chapter 2, by just gleaning some things from these wise men, as tradition has called them, I think we can draw some principles that will help us in our worship, not just on December 24th, but on January 24th, on March 24th, every day as we gather together as God's people to worship, I think these are things that are essential as we gather to worship. You know, the word worship is really derived from the word worthship, to, to give worth to something, what you give absolute value or worth to. If it's money, then that money is what you ascribe absolute worth to. You worship that. You know, we think of idolatry as not just uh, stone carvings or images or whatever. Idol at its very core is what you ascribe uh, your value to. And as Christians, we're to give the highest value of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at some of these Christmas friends of Scripture to show us how some of these first worshipers on the first Christmas, as we look at Scripture, not only did these individuals know how to find Jesus, uh, they knew where to find Jesus, and they came all the way, the Bible says, from the east. We're going to pick it up and read Matthew a little longer than we normally read on uh, Sunday mornings, but I want to read Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12, and it will be on the screen for your assistance if you do not have your own copy. Or this, this particular scripture, I'm using the New International Version, so if that's not the copy that you have, uh, 
may be a little different, maybe the words are a little different, but uh, we'll, all, we'll all arrive at the same place. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. That is these wise men that we often call, or three kings, and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, we know these are Pharisees and Sadducees, when he gathered them together, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. King Herod asked the religious leaders, tell me, where is this Messiah to be born? And they said in verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi, those men who came from the east secretly, and found out what the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for this child, and as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that had been Uh, that they had seen when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream... Not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. This is your breathed will. Lord, I pray that we would take a moment to, Lord, perhaps refresh our hearts and minds, allow your spirit to do that. Lord, to draw some things as we see of these men, some truths of how, Lord, we can learn to worship Jesus, to be reminded of how to worship the King, Lord, and how, not only what they said, but in their actions. Lord, we pray, God, that you would open your word to us, open our hearts and our minds, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is acceptable in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's look at these wise men as a guide and hear not only what they say, but what they do. Six parts, just six simple things out of this text to guide us in how to learn how to worship Christ. Draw some truths on how to worship from these wise men. Number one is start with a sincere desire. Listen, if you don't have a desire to worship God, you're not. If there's no desire to serve the Lord, if there's no desire to 
give your life expression to him, then you're not. It starts with a desire. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, the Magi uh, from the east came to Jerusalem. They had a sincere desire to find this child, this king, as uh, things, of course, we don't have time to go into and how they determine that, but they had a desire that came from great distance. They wanted to worship this king. They wanted to find this king. They wanted to acknowledge the authority of this king. You say, well, who are these men? Who are these, this magi? Well, in an overly simple way, they were uh, more than likely from Persia, which is today is Iran. Uh, they were seen as political advisors. They were knowledgeable in uh, astronomy and mathematics. They were really kind of the elite advisors that that uh, were around whatever royalty or throne. Um, they were religious, not certainly Judaistic religion, uh, but they were, uh, they were certainly seen as men of great intellect and knowledge in history, astronomy, and of course various religions. I found something very helpful that I would encourage you to do, uh, especially this time of year. I try to listen to it, I haven't done it yet, but uh, John MacArthur did a message called, Who Are Those? Who is the Magi? Who is the Magi? And you can find that on YouTube or on, their, uh, on his website, gty.org. Who is the Magi? And he gets into some fascinating history, and you see how God, in his providence, prepared this, these, these individuals thousands of years before the birth of Christ. And I think you'll find that very enlightening. It'll certainly give you more information than I can give. But some people have called them the kingmakers of their day. They were interested in serving royalty. And so uh, their knowledge, and this is something uh, historians point out, MacArthur points out, their knowledge and information of how to determine the Old Testament Jewish scriptures and the prophecy and the timing, more than likely in the Magi tradition that went back uh, I said thousands of years, maybe hundreds of years, but it really trace, you can trace it back to the prophet Daniel, because Daniel spent time as one of the advisors of, of uh, the king there in Persia, again today, Iran. And so where did they get this information? And more than likely, they gleaned it through the years as a result of what Daniel taught them while Daniel was in Persia. But they didn't just want to come and see him. They wanted to come worship him. They were hungry. And here's our point, is they had a desire to worship. How is your desire to worship Christ? And again, it's more than just coming to church. Most of you know that come regularly, you can come to church, but not worship God, right? You can come to worship filled with so many thoughts and ideas, and you're, you leave and you think, wow, I was so worried about thinking about this, thinking about that this week, thinking about the doctor's report, whatever it was, and I really don't see it sense that I worship. Worship isn't just coming into a building for an hour and a half or whatever it is during the week, but worship is a heart that I'm hungry to see God. Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about Mary and how God met her in a special way because she was hungry to know God. She was spiritually hungry. When you think of worship, one of the key components of our worship is desire. Am I 
hungry for God. God will fill hungry hearts. He will fill those who are spiritually hungry after Him. And if you're full of yourself and you're indifferent, guess what? God will leave you alone. He's not going to fill hearts and minds that are full of themselves. But when we worship, we want Him in our lives, we're saying, God, I need your presence to fill that need of why I was born, that connection with my Creator. God, I need your comfort to, feel, to, to fulfill that need of strength and, and hope in my life. Many times this time of year, people struggle with a sense of hope, a sense of fear over the future. God, I need your presence. I'm hungry for that. I need your strength, O oh Lord, to obey your will to obey your purposes and plans for my life. You see, desire is where you start. Having a hunger for God is where you begin. But notice, secondly, the second aspect we can learn is is to develop an expectant spirit. Be expectant. If you expect nothing from worship, you'll probably get nothing from worship, right? And it involves faith, trust. If you expect to meet God, if we say it that way, if we expect to encounter God in worship, if you come with an expectation of doing that, then you're coming already prepared to to receive. Look at verse 2. When they came, they said, where is this one to be born? They said, where is the one Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. They didn't say if, they expected. Where is he? Sometimes we need to come to worship on Sunday mornings with a sense of, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Christ. I want to encounter him this morning in worship. There's an expectation and there's a great lesson in that expectation. Look, it may shock you, but sometimes even pastors rush into Sunday not as prepared in our hearts and minds as we want to be. Oh, we're thinking about the mechanics of the, of the service, the preaching, the music, all those different things. But do I, Lord, I'm saying this to the Lord, I'm just letting you in on private conversation. Lord, I want to expect your presence. I want to expect not just for things to run orderly and things to run well, but do I really expect God to encounter you in the gathered worship when we gather together? It's interesting when you look at this Christmas story, you look at the different players that are involved in the Christmas story. Of course, you have these wise men, as we'll keep calling them, just we're familiar with that. They were delighted, weren't they? They were delighted and excited and expectant. Then you had Herod. The king who was threatened by anybody that would challenge or rival his throne and knowledge of a king that would be born. He was all all ears about that. He was disturbed by the idea of a king. And then you had the religious leaders. You would think that if anybody, if anybody would be expectant to meet Jesus... It would be these religious folks of Israel. But they seemed indifferent. They were distracted. Oh, they had their theology and knowledge and all the information. In fact, they were 
When they were asked, they said, oh, well, he's expected to be born here. And... But there was an over-familiarity. They knew that he was to be born in Bethlehem. Perhaps they even knew that the time and season had approached. But they didn't go. They didn't show up. They were distracted. They were disinterested. You know, you can be really familiar with the Christian message Faithful in church attendance, reading your Bible, doing all the things that we're encouraged to do. But really, when it comes down to it, there's an indifference to really knowing Christ. There's an indifference of Him coming and challenging and really being the ruler and authority in our life. That's a battle we, we face as believers. They knew the truth. But it didn't really impact or transform their life. How many today, you don't have to be convinced about Jesus. You believe that he's the son of God. You believe that he died on the cross to atone for your sin. You believe that he was bodily, physically resurrected on the third day. That You believe that he bodily, physically ascended into heaven. That he's, as the scripture says, he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. That one day he said he will return bodily, physically to the earth. You know what? You don't have to be convinced of any of that. But there's just not a sense of transformation that any of that truth, other than head knowledge, is made in your life. The Lord wants to transform not only our minds, but our minds that lead to transform hearts and lives. Notice thirdly, is they chose to express joy. You go to church, sometimes you think you're going to a funeral service. People are mad, angry, frown. One thing I love about this church, can't take credit, it's just the way the church has, I think, been in its 30-plus uh, years of history, is this is a friendly church. Many of you who are guests, either first time today or in the recent days, or you're coming, um, this is a friendly place. People have the joy. But you know, sometimes people confuse joy and happiness, don't they? Joy, let me just say happiness, is codependent upon circumstances. Got a good parking place in front of Walmart on Christmas Eve to get that last minute whatever. And you got happiness. You get something, you kind of hand it around for, and you're happy. But see, happiness is codependent upon a circumstance. And when the circumstance goes south, guess where your happiness goes? But the Bible differentiates between happiness and joy. Joy is not dependent upon the outward stimulus of life to make us happy or sad or whatever. Joy has a built-in spirit-filled shield that guards us that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because thou art with me. And that is the joy of the Lord that gives me strength. Some of you are going through some real health challenge. You're going through some tough issues in your life. <coughs> and it's the joy of the Lord that sustains you. 
You're not giddy. You're not skipping and dancing. Oh, you know, there's this idea that somehow joy as a Christian, we're just, uh, you know, as a kid, I remember, you know, you hear people, you know, slam their hand in the car. Oh, praise the Lord. Let me tell you something. Praise the Lord is not the first word that comes to my mind. And I like my job, and I won't tell you what that word is. I'm not talking about that silliness. I'm saying when you look at people, and I call your name out in this room, and you're walking through that valley, and you're sad, you're, you've got hardship, you have a burden. It's not easy. But what keeps you going? It's the joy of knowing that if God before me, who can be against me? That in all these things I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. That he who begun a good work in my life, Philippians 1.6, he will finish it and complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That he works all things together for good in my life for his purpose and his glory. That's the joy that sustains you. And sometimes we need to choose to express joy. My grandfather... Was, an overly, was not an overly gregarious individual. And we would take pictures or whatever, and he was a very loving, kind man. But if he just smirked a little bit out of his mouth, that was exuberant joy. <laughs> now, individuals will go nameless in this congregation, but they are known for a lack of excitement. They might be jumping up and down and screaming on the inside, and I will say, wasn't that great, Sherry? <laughs> we tease each other about that. But seriously, sometimes when we come together, we need to even sometimes pray and say, Lord, help me today to choose the joy of knowing you. The joy that even though I'm walking through this dark season of my life, I'm going to choose the joy of the Lord. Not happiness, the joy of the Lord. Some people say, well, I just believe God wants me to be happy. Really? Well, tell that to 99% of people in the Bible. But God wants you to be joyful. In fact, Scripture says, Psalm 511, but let, those who, let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout, for joy. Another Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And I was looking at Jude 24. Jude is just one book, but Jude 24 even tells us that joy is going to be an essential requirement before the throne of God. Listen to this benediction at the end of the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with what? Exceeding joy. That's a part of worship. Choose joy. Number four of things that we can learn here is toyed with the wording of this, but decide to humble yourself. Now, you know, humility is one of those things that when you achieve it, you lose, right? You know, when you got the humble award, you know, that doesn't quite work out. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. 
What was the old song? Was it Mac Davis? It's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I know that, I know that dates me big time, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about some false stuff. I'm just saying that, well, let's look at the example. It doesn't matter what I say. Let's look at what we're talking about here from the Scripture. Look at verse 11. Talk about these wise men. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. These three, I say three, we, we say three because there's three gifts, but it could have been five, could have been ten, certainly was at least an entourage, but we don't really know. But these wise men, and because of what we do know about their prestige and power and their status of where they came from, they were in essence used to people bowing before them. They were used to people acknowledging their authority, their intellect, their knowledge. They were used to that. But what do we see here? We see them demonstrating humility as they come into the presence of Christ. Did they know everything? No, they were very little. But what they did know, they responded in proper worship. They bowed. They recognized that they were in the presence of someone greater. And by their bowing down, they worshiped him. You know, it's interesting. People, we don't talk much about it. But you know, there's a whole posture that the Bible talks about with worship. The Bible talks about lifting your hands, talks about kneeling, clapping, dancing. The Bible expresses through the life of the believer a full expression of worship. But there's something about kneeling and bowing down. Talking about my grandfather, he wasn't a big church man. He claimed he went to the Methodist church down the road, but I question that. He might have been once and claimed it was a habit, but, but you know what? I have no doubt that he loved Jesus, and he was, he was, and he is in heaven. But I remember oftentimes as a little boy when I would stay at their house, they lived, I was thankful that I was probably within a few miles between both sets of grandparents, which is a rarity which is a rarity. Spent time, each one would call him up on the weekend and I'd go over there and dreaded my dad come over on Sunday night, pick me up because I knew the next day was school. And oh, dreadful, dreadful. Because you know, when you go to your grandparents, they just kind of let you, they make your favorite food and you do anything and like, mom and dad, why can't we live like this all the time? But it doesn't work out that way. But I remember many times getting ready for bed and walking by his bedroom and I would see him kneeling as he would pray before he went to bed. He wasn't an overtly religious person. He wasn't, I don't think he even knew what a track was to hand it out. I mean, he wasn't that kind of person. But there was a genuine sincerity of heart. Look, we encourage you to do many things. But listen, when it's all said and done, God knows who you are in the dark. He knows where your heart is. And don't, 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 don't compare yourself to somebody else. Be sincere and show that humility uh, that I think we can learn from these, these wise men. You see, worship, again, isn't just being in church. Worship is living under the fullness and recognition of God every day, every moment. We're never, where shall I go from your presence, the Bible says. 
Psalm 144 verse 3 says, Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him? There's something about when you, like these wise men, we come into the presence of a greater authority than us, and there's something natural. The Bible says that one day, in Philippians, it says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Can I just give you a little admonition? It's better to humble yourself now as Jesus is Savior than to one day be humbled where Jesus is your judge and not your Savior. It's better to bow the knee to the King today, now, while there's time. But look with me at number five, what we can learn from these, these wise men. Fifthly, as we gather for worship, plan to give gifts. Now, don't panic. We're not going to take up an offering. I was tempted, but no, now I'm teasing. But you know, giving of gifts is much bigger than just money is just a tool. It's just a symbol, if you will. The most famous thing that we know about these three wise men, and sometimes why we say there's three, is because of their famous gifts. They gave, uh, well, Matthew 2.11. Let's read the rest of it. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and of myrrh. Look at some of these first gifts that they brought. They came not empty-handed when they came to worship. They gave him gold. And it's interesting because all three of these gifts serve as precursors to not only who Jesus is, but his mission and what he would do. Gold speaks of royalty. Gold is, foreshadows the fact that Jesus is a king. Gold is a gift that was given to kings. They were recognizing in their gift of gold. They were recognizing the royalty status and kingship of Christ. You see, gold is, in our term, when we say they won the gold medal, that doesn't mean they won third place, does it? The gold, they're going for the gold. They won the gold. What is the gold? The gold is the best. So we could tie an application. We're not asked to bring physical gold, but gold representing our best. We bring our best as we come to worship. Our best of our time, talent, and treasures. The best of our time that we're investing in the kingdom. Our talents, our spiritual gifts, and certainly our treasures. The Bible speaks about giving, financially giving. But notice, secondly, not only did they bring him gold, but they brought him frankincense. Frankincense. Frankincense was uh, in the temple worship of the day when the, t the temple, the Jewish temple, existed. Uh, the priests used frankincense as a perfume, if you will, as a as a uh, aroma that um, in the uh, that went up before the Lord in worship. And it's an amazing thing when you think about uh, this part of worship is that God, even in the colors of the priestly garments, I mean, in the design of the original tabernacle and the temple and the color and the detail, and even in the 
uh, offering of the, the, the frankincense, the aroma before the Lord, that God was to be experienced in every part of our being, not only in our sight, but our hearing, but also in the very smell, that there was no facet of our body that we weren't to experience God, a very God. And so this frankincense speaks and points to the fact that Jesus is our priest. Hebrews 4.14 speaks of him as our great high priest. What is a priest? A priest isn't somebody that wears a collar. A priest in the Old Testament sense is somebody you could say is like a, a, a go-between, a bridge builder, someone who goes between God and man. Jesus is the one who was sent to go between God, holy God, and sinful humanity. He stands as our priest to bring us together to reconcile us through the cross and through his resurrection. He wants to bring you close to God, and that's what Jesus does. But let me make this application. If gold, listen to me, if gold was bringing to the Lord our best, frankincense is bringing to the Lord our worst. You say, well, that's odd. But see, that's what a priest does. He stands between God, holy God, and sinful humanity. You say, you mean I bring in my worst? What is my worst? Your worst that you bring before your high priest is your sin, your estrangement, your guilt. You see, Jesus died on the cross to give us the gift of forgiveness. When I bring my sin, when I bring my guilt to him, when I say, Lord Jesus, I need your forgiveness in my life, in essence, there's a gift in that in giving back to him because we're acknowledging the great gift of forgiveness because the only thing that I bring to salvation is my sin. I can't bring my good works. I can't bring my church attendance. I can't bring the fact that you came on Christmas Eve and you might get double brownie points if you come tonight. It doesn't count. It's not the point. The only thing that I bring before a holy God is my sin. And I'm woefully inadequate. And I need a priest. I need a great high priest. I need a perfect high priest who will stand between me and this holy God and bring reconciliation. I need the forgiveness that Christ brings. The gift of his forgiveness. You bring him your best with the gold. You give him your worst with your sin. As that frankincense reminds us of the priest. Gold, frankincense, and also they gave him myrrh. Now this is really interesting because myrrh was a, a spice that was used to embalm the corpse of the dead. I think you can immediately see how this pointed to the future of this baby that we see in this manger that one day this baby would live a full life of 33 and a half years and would be crucified on the cross. Jesus gave his life and the myrrh speaks of this atoning death and sacrifice did they understand all that Paul would write? Of course not. Why did they bring all those particular gifts? You know, why didn't they bring five, ten? I don't know. But how it was in God's design and providence 
that they brought him gold that speaks of his royalty. They brought him frankincense that reminds us and speaks of the priestly role of Jesus. And of all things, they bring him myrrh. Now, moms, what would you think if somebody came to your house to acknowledge and welcome your newborn baby and they brought something that pointed to the death of this child? You think they were nuts. You think they were crazy. But they, in God's providence, brought him myrrh that spoke of his death. By the way, these gifts of great, great value that when Joseph and Mary had to flee to escape Herod and went to Egypt, guess what? These, these gifts provided a great deal of financial blessing to them that helped them support their lives until they could return back. You see, Jesus, in speaking of the myrrh, it reminds us of the great cost of Jesus who gave his life for us. Now, we don't give our life to him to uh, earn salvation, but I wonder if there still is an application in reminding in response to worship when we think of what Jesus said in Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, these wise men didn't come to Jesus without bringing something that cost them something. We respond by a giving and generous spirit, not to earn God's favor, but in response to the great generosity of what God has given to us in Christ. But there's a last helpful example, and that's number six. End with an obedient response. You do what God has told you to do. People that claim to worship God claim to acknowledge the leadership of Jesus in their life, but don't follow what he says. Jesus said, real simply, if you love me, if you love me, you will do what? You will keep my commandments. You will obey what I teach, what I say. Worship happens even after the quote-unquote worship service. Worship, the real worship, you could almost say, is what we do when we go outside these doors. Are we really true believers? And we really believe this message that has affected and changed our life. Look at verse 12, Matthew 2, verse 12. And these wise men, having been warned by God in a dream not to go back to Herod. Remember Herod said, hey, when you, when you get the details, why don't you come back? Because, you know, I, I want to go and worship. Yeah, right. Big lie. But they were warned in a dream by the Holy Spirit not to go back to Herod. And look at this. They returned to their country by another route. By another route. When I read that, I don't know why that that word, another route. And I thought, you know, really, isn't that really what worship should do? Is it changes your path? It changes the route you came in? And you go out by a different path. 
That's the change that genuine worship should bring in our life. These individuals limited in what they knew, what they intellect, theology, very limited. But they responded appropriately when they came to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, when they came into the presence. You know, cliche, but it, it's just true. When we talk about that Jesus is the reason for the season. And we need to be reminded of that. I read a story of a mother who was having a gathering at her home to celebrate the birth of her newborn son. And she invited a bunch of people over to this fancy luncheon to celebrate his arrival. And she welcomed the guests. And they all had a great time celebrating, eating and drinking, opening presents and gifts. And an hour and a half or so, one of the ladies said, why don't you bring the baby out? Let's see the baby. And the mother went in to get her newborn baby son from the crib, and he wasn't there. She started to panic. She started to be fearful, and then suddenly she remembered that the baby was still at her parents' house where she left him earlier that morning. And all the partying and all the celebrating, the baby was left out. Guys, don't let all the celebrating, all the joyful things that we do, get the baby in the house, if I could use that phrase, and remember Jesus this year. I know many of you, most of you know that. But if you're like me, you need to be reminded again and again and again that without Christ, without the birth of Christ, without the invasion of God becoming a man, Emmanuel, we would be a people without hope. I want you to have hope. I don't want you to leave here under a guilt trip. I want you to have hope that Jesus is alive, that the truth of the gospel is life-changing, that he wants to transform and change your life if, if, if you will let him. Let's pray.